All right, let's, let's pray together before we get into the word today. Lord, um, again, I just pray that you would help us to, to apply what we learn. Uh, Lord, the, James was a plain-spoken fellow. He, he laid it out just like it is. Uh, Lord, it's, it's easy to read. It's easy to understand even. Uh, not so easy to do. So, Lord, we, we pray that you would uh, enable us, Lord, as your servants, to be pleasing and, and humble and obedient servants. Uh, Lord, we can, we can have all the good intentions we, we want to have, but unless we operate in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can't live a life that's pleasing to you. So, Lord, please take the words and inform us, but more than inform us, change us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, let's look back in James. We're going to go to James chapter 4, and we're going to talk about some poisonous weeds in the church. Um, any of you outdoorsmen tell me what, if you go out in the woods and you're walking around and you see a vine, what vine do you want to stay away from? <laughs> yeah, that's right, poison ivy. You want to be able to recognize that, don't you? Now, uh, my dad gave me this little rhyme to remember so that I wouldn't mess with poison ivy. Any of you heard that? It says, leaves of three, let them be, right? <laughs> Because you don't want to mess with it. If you see something that looks like poison ivy and it's got five leaves, you don't have to worry about that. But if you see something with three leaves, you better run away from it. I've had a bad case of poison ivy. And one time I got it on my lower legs and then a friend invited me to go hunting with him. So I put on these big old rubber boots that come up to my knee. Well, that's a bad idea when you have poison ivy, let me tell you. Uh, I didn't want to take my boots off, but boy, did I want to chop my legs off before I got done with that hunting trip. So we need to know what these are and be able to avoid them. Now these poisonous weeds that we're going to talk about in the church, they have three leaves as well that we're going to see this morning. The first one is quarrelsomeness. Look with me in James 4 verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. We get jealous of things that we don't have, and we get covetous of things we don't have, and then sometimes we say, it's not fair that somebody else has this and that I don't have it, so I should go and take it. We also, we we run into this when we see people in the church that have a desire for power and for control. You know, that's a strange thing, uh, but yet it's something that I observed over, over decades of being in the church and over my time as being a behind-the-scenes kind of guy in the church. There will sometimes be people who think that they need to seize control of things. They need to be in power in a church. And this is usually people that don't have any power of any kind outside the church. Um, you know, we... Uh, I had a friend who was an FBI agent, and in, in, he went to church at this church that I was, uh, I was associated with, and I was friends with him. And somebody like that who has a, real, uh, has a job, has a life, has a uh, power structure that he's accountable to and that he's in, those are not usually the folks that are seeking to grab power in the church. It's usually folks that don't really have any authority anywhere else. And when they try to get authority in the church, that usually leads to problems. It usually leads to quarreling and fights. 
The second one besides quarrelsomeness that we need to be able to see and dispose of is prayerlessness. James 4, 2 and 3 says, You do not have because you do not ask. Talk about plain and easy to understand. (laughs) If we don't pray, odds are our prayers won't get answered, right? We have to ask if we want an answer. Then he goes on to say, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now let me ask you, do you ever face the dilemma of unanswered prayer? If you've been a Christian more than a week, I would say you probably have experienced praying for something and then God not answering you in the way that you would have him answer. And we need to look at a couple of things. One is, sometimes we don't ask the right thing because we don't know any better. Uh, I was talking to Jimmy this morning about a situation that I had prayed about and, and, and been confronted with and... It seemed like something that I should pursue. It seemed like a good opportunity, but I didn't feel good about it. Um, Something was holding me back, so I didn't pursue it. And then later on, I find out what it is uh, that would have been bad about it. A lot of times, we don't get that answer. We just have to go with what we think the Lord is leading us to do and, and use the wisdom that we find in Scripture. But sometimes we get that answer, sometimes we don't. But another problem is you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Um, Catherine regularly has my credit card. (laughs) She will take my credit card and she'll go to the store for us and she'll get some things or uh, sometimes she just kind of keeps it for general uh, use which would make me nervous if I didn't trust her. But let me ask you this. I get a I get a notification on my phone whenever my credit card is used. I want to know if somebody is, you know, ordering patio furniture in Tijuana, right? I want to know that so I can put a stop to it. So whenever she spends money on my credit card, I get an alert. Now, if one evening I'm sitting around and I see that there's a liquor store in Hattiesburg that has a $100 charge on my credit card, and then there's a lingerie shop in in the mall there that has a $100 expense on my credit card, And then there's a motel room rental. (laughs) Believe me, I'm going to have called Catherine and say, when did you lose my credit card? Because if she didn't lose my credit card, I'm going to be driving to Hattiesburg to to kill people, right? So (laughs) I need to know what's going on. And people need to use my money and my resources in my name the way I want it used, right? I'm not going to give my purchasing power and my authority to someone who is going to use it in a harmful and destructive way, in a way that I would not approve of. And so the Lord is is smarter than I am. And when we pray, if we ask things to spend on our own lusts and our own passions, God's not going to answer that prayer. Uh, I've told you before, and I stole this from Adrian Rogers, and I'm going to use it again because when that man speaks, people ought to listen. He says God is too smart to give his power and his authority to rebels, right? If you've got people that are fighting against you, you're not going to supply them with arms. Unless, you know, (laughs) I know countries do that. But anybody with any sense doesn't do that. We don't give provision to the enemy. And so if you're praying and you're asking God wrongly to spend it on your passions, then God's not dumb and he's not going to answer those prayers. So, we need to watch out for quarrelsomeness in the church. 
we need to look out for prayerlessness. And along with prayerlessness is prayers that are, are asked in the wrong spirit for the wrong things. But the third thing is that James warns us about is worldliness. He tells us in James 4, 4 to 5, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's pretty clear cut. Friend of the world, enemy of God. You can't hang on with both hands. We'll talk about that in a second. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, James calls the, called these people adulterous. Now, he's talking to Christians, right? He's talking to believers, and he's calling them adulterous. Does that mean that everybody in that church was committing adultery? No, this is talking about, you know how in the Old Testament, uh, God would say that the nation of Israel has committed adultery. They have gone whoring after other gods. They have pursued these other gods. So that's the same thing that he's talking about. The church is the bride of Christ. And so when we are unfaithful to Christ, he's calling that adultery. It's not the actual physical act of adultery by members of that church, most likely. It was that they were being unfaithful to their husband, who was Jesus Christ, as head of the church. So we need to let go talking about worldliness we need to let go of the mundane things so we can grasp the glorious things with both hands c.s lewis has a quote about this that is brilliant and i want to give it to you and this is from the beginning part of a sermon called the weight of glory listen to what c.s lewis said he said if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospels It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Check this out. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. He's happy as he can be making his little mud pies in the slum because he can't even conceive of what it would be like to go on holiday to the sea. And then he says, we are far too easily pleased. So believers who are worldly, meaning they're trying to grasp on to Jesus with one hand and they're trying to hang on to the world with the other hand, they don't realize the glory that could be theirs if they would let go of the world and pursue God with their full energy. Uh, So it's not that God is trying to keep good things from us. It's that he's trying to keep the bad things from us so that we'll have the energy and effort and pursuit of the greatest things. So when James says, don't be worldly, He's not saying God doesn't like for you to have fun. God doesn't like for you to enjoy life. You're supposed to act this certain way and you can't go around having a good time. That's not what he's saying. He's saying let go of the mundane to grasp the glorious. You see, if we try to hang on to both with one hand, we're not going to thoroughly enjoy either one of them. When If we're really a truly born-again believer and we're pursuing worldly things, we're pursuing sins... 
We're not going to be able to rest in that and enjoy that to the fullest because the Holy Spirit in us is going to say, you know better than to do this. You're living in rebellion. And if we're only half-heartedly pursuing God, we're not going to get to that level of intimacy that is so enjoyed by a mature believer. So instead of doing the disservice to yourself of trying to hang on to the world with one hand and trying to hang on to Christ with the other, let go of the world, abandon the, the sin, and pursue Christ. Now you may be saying, well, that's harder done than said, and I agree. But it should be the pursuit. It should be the aim of what we're going after on a daily basis. So he tells us these three leaves of this poisonous plant are quarrelsomeness, prayerlessness, and worldliness. But the root of this thing is pride. Look with me in James 4, 6. James gives us hope here. He says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Every time we see somebody approach Jesus in Scripture, we see him deal with them according to this verse. When the proud came to Jesus, they usually got a smackdown, right? He would say, you brood of vipers. Okay, when the humble came to Christ, he was gentle with them. You know, he, he talked about the guy who was in the temple saying, Oh, Lord, I'm so glad I'm not like these tax collectors and horrible people. And Jesus didn't have kind things to say about him. But when that tax collector was saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, that is the approach that we need to take with Christ. He will give grace to the humble. And guys, it says that God opposes the proud. I've had opposition in my life, and some opposition you can deal with, some you can overcome, but when God himself sits in opposition to you, you don't have any hope, right? So God opposes the proud. You do not want to put yourself in that category for God to oppose. So we see this, this poisonous thing that can grow up in the church. We see what the root of it is. Now what is the cure for this? James tells us. The cure is to submit to God. Verse 7 says, submit yourselves therefore to God. All right, can't put it any plainer, right? Submit yourself to God. Submission is a lost art form though, I am telling you. Uh, the Lord has trained me over the years to submit. Um, my only conclusion that I can draw from that is I probably wouldn't have been very good at it without training. All right, I have been uh, working for and with people for years and years, and I have had to submit to them some of the time. I think I gave you this, this uh, example earlier, but let me tell you again. I was working with a guy, a music guy, and he and I both knew some stuff about music. He was a crazy good singer, and I was uh, much more educated and capable in the instrumental department. And I was, I was in charge of the orchestra. And this guy told me some things to do with the orchestra that weren't, weren't the best idea. And so what I did was I respectfully told him, well, I think this would be a better idea. And he said, well, nah, just do what I said. And I said, yes, sir. And I did it, and I did it to the best of my ability. Why? It's because I was learning to submit. We got to learn that. We got to teach our children that, by the way. Because if your kids don't learn to submit at home, they're never going to learn to submit anywhere else. Now, let me ask you, is submission the same thing as weakness? No, it is absolutely not. 
if you understand God's sovereignty, if you think that he's actually in charge and he's really, where, he's really the one that put you where you are, then submission is the natural outflow of believing in the sovereignty of God. It's not that you have to assert yourself. What you have to do is play the role that God has asked you to play for this season. And then if God decides, hey, I want to use you somewhere else, I want to use you in this different way, then God will see to it that he takes care of that. Now, am I perfect at submission? No, absolutely not. Why? Because of pride. Pride is what keeps us from being submitted wholeheartedly to God. Because really, if I had gone to that music guy and I would said, you know, look, you're a better singer than I am, but I know what I'm talking about and you don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to do it my way. That would have been the wrong thing to do. Probably would have gotten fired, you know. (laughs) But sometimes, but it would have been reasonable, okay? It wouldn't have been crazy like it is when we do it with God. When God tells us to do something and we don't submit to him, that's insanity because we're not smarter. We're not more educated and we're not right when we oppose God. So first thing is submit yourselves to God in every respect. The rest of that sentence in verse 4, chapter 4, verse 7 says... Resist the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Guys, I've, I've, I've seen people say that they are struggling with a certain sin. There, there doesn't seem to be much of a struggle. <laughs> There's no sign of a struggle. What they mean is uh, they keep giving into it and then they keep praying, Oh God, forgive me for the 850th time and help me not do it again. And then they, they roll over the next time that, that comes to them. And they don't fight it. They don't resist it. What, what the word says is resist the devil and he will flee from you. So if your resistance looks like passive surrender, no, actually resist and the devil will flee from you. The next point that James tells us is to draw near to God. Verse 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Another thing that I heard Dr. Rogers say to me one time was, fake it until you make it. (laughs) If you know what to do and you don't feel like doing it, too bad, do it anyway. Do it anyway, pursue godliness, pursue discipline, and then eventually you'll feel like doing it. Uh, What he would tell new believers is, read a chapter of the Gospel of John every day. And you may not understand everything. But obey the part you don't understand, and before long you'll understand the part you didn't understand. And then he'll say, understand? All right, so the point is, we do what we know to do, we do the right thing, and then our heart will get into it maybe after our actions do. Uh, When I study the Bible, I study the Bible for a lot of reasons. One, I know I'm supposed to. One, uh, I love to do it. One, I get to preach, so I better study it. There are a lot of reasons that I study the Bible. But there have been times in my life where I didn't feel like sitting down and doing my Bible reading. You know what? I did it anyway. And then the more I did it, the more I felt like doing it. There are times when I didn't feel like listening to good preaching. Uh, Those have been rare times. (laughs) But what I would do is turn on a podcast anyway, and I'd hear some good preaching. And I'd go, man, this is great. I need more of this. And so pursuing godliness, when you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. And the things that you don't want to do, but you know you ought to do, do them anyway. And the Lord will give you the desire for more and more and more of Him. Persistent sin won't be conquered 
without shifting your focus to your relationship with Christ. Um, if you just focus on a sin that you want to overcome, odds are you're going to have a miserable struggle with that sin. But if you say, look, I'm going to resist the devil by not, not doing this. Instead, I'm going to pursue God. You know, they say that idle hands are the devil's uh, plaything. It, it's the truth, guys. If you're doing nothing, if you're sitting there in neutral, there's no telling which way you're going to end up going. But if you're actively pursuing God, you're doing the things you know you ought to do. You're reading your Bible. You're studying your Bible. You're meeting with the fellowship. You're becoming an active part of the body. Those things, those pursuits, that energy will drive you in the right direction. And God will encourage you as you go. Submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God. And then the end of this section tells us to repent. What he says is, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, verse 10 is one of those paradoxes that we find in Scripture. You know, a paradox is a thing that is apparently contradictory until we examine it. And then we see that it's not contradictory. So, the word says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You know, Jesus told a story where he said, if you go to a banquet, don't go up to the front of the banquet and sit at the best seat. Because if you do... The master of the banquet might come in and say, no, that seat's not for you. You go down to the end and you'll be embarrassed and you'll be humiliated. He said, don't do that. Instead, when you go to a banquet, you go sit in the lowly chair. And then if the master wants to exalt you, he'll come in and say, no, you shouldn't be there. You should be up at the head table. So if we humble ourselves, God will take care of exalting you when and if he chooses to do so. Now, sometimes we just don't trust him to do that. And that's why we try to exalt ourselves. Exalting yourself will end up uh, in, in humiliation or it will end up putting you in a position you don't need to be in. Uh, you know, we've all seen people that are not qualified to do a job that they're asked to do anyway. Uh, there was a book written on, on management and business management a few years back. I believe it was called the Peter Principle. And what it was, the basic thesis of this thing was, there are people who do a great job at a certain level, and then they get a raise, and they are moved up to management or whatever. And eventually they they get raised up to the level of their incompetence. Because while they're good here, they get a raise and they go here, and they're no longer good. They're no longer functioning at 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 a place that makes a benefit for the company. So what a lot of American businesses would do is they would take people and promote them and promote them all the way up to the level of their incompetence (laughs) instead of leaving them where they ought to be. So we don't want to promote ourselves to the level of incompetence. We want to do the greatest job that we can do where we are, and then if the Lord chooses to exalt us, he will do so. So what is this business about be wretched and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom? That, that sounds like bad advice. He's saying to repent genuinely. He's saying that, hey, if you have some of these qualities, if you are quarrelsome or if you have that, that uh, prayerlessness in your life or if you are hanging on to the world, 
Repent of it. Genuinely repent of it. Repent in sorrow. And that's why he's saying uh, to be wretched and mourn and weep. You know, one of the best examples to understand what repentance genuinely is, is to read Psalm 51. Uh, David was genuinely, wholeheartedly repentant. You know, David did everything uh, full volume, right? <laughs> when David was uh, living for, for the Lord, uh, he was doing it with all his energy. When he fell into grievous sin, whoa, did he fall hard because he was going all in. And then when he repented, the same thing. He repented wholeheartedly. I'm going to read you a few verses of Psalm 51 so you can see what I mean. David wrote, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now let me ask you just a second. Did, did David just sin against God? No, he, he sinned against the whole nation of Israel. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned big time against Bathsheba's husband that he had killed. He sinned against a lot of people. But what is he saying here? He's saying none of that matters at all compared to the fact that I have sinned against God. And so when we repent, if we repent that way, in an attitude of humility that says, God, I have been quarrelsome in the church. I have started trouble, and I'm going to repent of it wholeheartedly. Or if we say, God, I, you know, I'm not praying. Uh, I don't really depend on you because I don't even ask you for stuff. And when I do ask you for stuff, what I'm asking you for is things that, that I want that are selfishly motivated. If you find yourself in that camp, say, I'm going to repent, but I'm going to do it in humility and wholeheartedness. And if you say, well, worldliness, I mean, there are different levels of worldliness, right? Well, there are, and they're all bad, and uh, we all need to repent of those things because, you know, there are, there are temptations that the world and the flesh and the devil bring across our path. That sometimes we bite, we bite those things, right? We go after those things. But what James tells us is that we're led away by our own passions and our own lusts. So if we find ourselves being worldly and pursuing the things of the world, well, then we need to repent big time, wholeheartedly, like we see in Psalm 51. So we know how to get rid of the weed if we find that we have these bad traits in us. We know that the root is pride, and we know how to get rid of that is by repentance. But then let me ask you, do we know if it's actually dead or not? Have you ever gone out and cut off a plant you didn't want, and then in the spring, there's that plant again, right? <laughs> I've done that, because you have to kill the whole thing. Well, is the weed dead, or is the root still alive? One way we can tell, James 4, 11 to 12 discusses this. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Now, James keeps going back to this controlling the tongue thing, which I'm not super good at, and which I bet some of you struggle with as well. So he says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? 
So, verse 11 is not particularly uh, clear uh, upon first reading. I was like, what is he talking about? So, let's look at that. He says, don't speak evil against another brother. That's easy. Then he says, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. So, what is that saying? Well, he's saying that if, if we know that we're not supposed to slander our brother, we're not supposed to do this, but we do it anyway, then what we're saying, in effect, is... I know better than God does. You know, if we see a speed limit sign and it says 55 and we say, I just can't drive 55 and so we go 70, what we're saying is we know better than the person that put up the speed limit. We know better than the lawmakers. Uh, we, we know what's safe. We're going to do what we want to do. And again, that's one thing when we disagree with the uh, Mississippi legislator. But when we tell God, I know you said don't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway then what we're telling him is, we know better than you, and we're going to do what we want to do. So that's why if we decide to disregard the law, we are a judge of the law, and we're not a doer of the law, but a judge of that law instead. And then he says, there's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? You know, the Bible tells us clearly that we are not to have anything to do with judging those outside the church. It also tells us that we are to have something to do with judging those inside the church. Why? Is it to condemn them? Is it to start trouble? No, no, not at all. It is to see if a brother is going down the wrong path and be able to correct that brother and help him get on the right path. But as far as those outside the church, he says, we don't have any business judging them. So let me ask you, what do we do about this stuff that we see? Well, the first thing is we try to figure out if we are quarrelsome. <laughs> Guys, if you're arguing with people inside the church or if you're just hard to get along with or if you say, well, I know the leadership has asked me to do this, but I'm not going to do it, <laughs> right? Then that is a quarrelsome spirit that you need to examine. Now, sometimes there's a good reason not to do something, right? Um, if the leadership is wrong, then disagree with the leadership. But if the leadership is doing something that they say, hey, I think it would be helpful for you if you did this, and you just say, well, I don't feel like it. Well, it's a quarrelsomeness that we need to take a look at and say, why is that there? And then prayerlessness. Guys, I know people uh, all the time that will, you know, who was it that said there's no atheist in a foxhole? There are people who, when things go wrong, they're going to pray. But when things go right, they're not going to pray. They're not going to come to church. But all of a sudden, there's a crisis in their life, and, ooh, they're praying all the time, and they even might come to church for a week or two. You know, when 9-11 happened, um, you couldn't hardly get anybody else in the church, right? What was it, about two weeks, two to three weeks, and we were back to normal? Folks experience things in their life that disrupts them or scares them, and all of a sudden, they'll pray or they'll attend church. But we need to be constantly prayerful. You know, the Bible tells us to pray without ceasing. So if prayerlessness has crept into your spiritual life, grab a hold of that before it grows and turns into something disastrous. And then worldliness. If, if we know that we are worldly, and look guys, if we laugh at things uh, that, that God would disapprove of, if we go places that God would disapprove of, and I, I don't mean what some of you may think I mean, uh, if Jesus were here physically, He'd be in a lot of places that we won't go, okay? Um, I was listening to a preacher talk the other day that said, 
he uh, witnessed to somebody, and then as a result of that, he said to that guy who he led to the Lord, do you have friends that we need to share this with? And he said, absolutely. And uh, so the pastor was like, great, uh, let's go. And, and the guy said, I'll pick you up. He picked him up, drove him straight to the bar. <laughs> okay. But you know what? There were people that needed Jesus in the bar, so that's okay, right? That's where that preacher needed to be. But there are certain things we do that we know we shouldn't do, and we live in a way that, that's just like what the world does. And we say, you know, that is a problem. I've got to take a look at that. All these things, though, all of them stem from our pride. And, guys, pride is so hard to see. Um, if, if you have a problem with pride, it's real easy for me to see. <laughs> but if I have a problem with pride, it's invisible all of a sudden. I can't see it. And so we need one another. We need accountability. But also we need to look into the mirror of God's word and see that pride when, when it's becoming a problem. So what we do is submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And then if there are sins in your life that you know about, repent of them. You know, I told the, the thing last week about how um, you need to keep a short account of wrongs with God. Repentance is not something that we need to do quarterly when we have the Lord's Supper, right? Repentance is something we need to do hourly, daily, minute by minute. Whenever we are aware that sin has come into our life, we need to stop and repent of it right then before it grows up and wreaks havoc in our life. Now, if you are here today and you say, man, this dude is, uh, this dude is preaching that we have to behave. Well, that's true. We do have to behave. But let me make it clear that... We don't behave ourselves into a relationship with God. That is the wrong end of the shotgun, as a friend of mine says. What really happens is we get in a relationship with God. God starts transforming who and what we are. And then we live that out in a way that is pleasing to him. So, hear me. Works don't get us into a relationship with God. But a genuine relationship with God produces good works in us. And so let me tell you the gospel right quick. And again, let me, let me remind you, if you say, man, you say this every week. Yeah, I do say this every week. But if you're not saved, listen to me. If you are saved, listen to me and say, he said this so many times that I think I can go tell my neighbor. Okay? Here's the gospel. The gospel is that we have sinned. And everybody knows that. You don't have to, you don't have to convince somebody of sin. Uh, occasionally, people will say, well, I'm not sure there's such a thing as sin. Well, if they say that, steal their wallet, and all of a sudden they'll believe in sin, you know, because <laughs> you weren't supposed to do that. So we have sinned and created a problem with our fellowship with God. Well, God solved that problem for us in the person of Jesus Christ. What he did was he lived a perfect, righteous, holy life where he fulfilled the law completely in every respect. You know, we're about to celebrate Christmas. And why is that? It's because God himself became a man. Why did he do that? He did that so that he could live a perfect, righteous, holy life that we couldn't live. And then he could trade that with us. He could give that to us. He could credit that to our account. Just as when we pray and we ask him to forgive us, he will take all of the sin that you've ever committed, put that on Jesus Christ's account, and Jesus Christ paid for that 2,000 years ago when he died on the cross in your place. But also, to your account, he will credit a life of perfect righteousness and obedience that Jesus Christ lived on your behalf. So, if you are separated from God today, let me tell you, it would be great to just have your sins forgiven. 
but God will do more than that. He will not only forgive your sins, but he'll credit to you Christ's righteousness. So it's not that you're just back to neutral. It is that you are beloved and treasured by God. That is almost too good to be true, but it's true and it's that good. So let me tell you, that's the gospel. If you don't know the gospel today and you say, well, I've heard that a bunch of times, but I don't think it's ever changed anything in me because I like to quarrel. (laughs) I don't pray. I don't pray unless something's going wrong. And worldliness, man, I love the world. Uh, The world is more fun than church is. I like worldly people. I like worldly television shows. I like stuff that you guys don't like. And I think there's something different about me. Well, if that's you today, then maybe it's because you've, you've not met the Savior yet and had him transform who you are. You know, God will give you a whole different set of want-tos when you meet him. The things that you used to want and that you used to think were precious and valuable, after you meet Christ, he'll change those into different things. And so if you're here today and you say, you know, I don't think if I died today I'd go to heaven because I don't think I've actually been transformed by Christ. Don't leave. Don't leave here today without coming and talking to me. As I always say, I can't save you, but I can introduce you to the one who can. All right, let's stand together, and Brother Jimmy's going to come.